Uh, it's a pleasure to see you all here and to, to welcome you to this panel discussion on international cooperation and climate change. Uh, I'm chairing this event this evening. My name's Katie Steele. I'm a faculty member of the philosophy department here at LSE. Uh, before I introduce our excellent panelists in just a moment, um, let me just say this event is co-hosted by the Forum for European Philosophy and the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSE. Um, so we've got an excellent panel here this evening, uh, and it's a pleasure to introduce them. I'm just going to introduce everyone uh, in the order in which they'll be speaking. Uh, so our first speaker will be on the end there, Alina Avachenkova, uh, who is co-head of climate policy uh, in the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSE. Uh, Alina has a wealth of experience in international climate policy, both academically and practically, in terms of uh, engaging with relevant decision makers uh, on the issue. Sitting next to Alina, we've got John Broom, uh, who is an emeritus professor, uh, emeritus white professor of moral philosophy at the University of Oxford. Uh, John's written a number of books uh, on the interface of ethics and economics, uh, including two on climate change, one from the early 90s uh, called Counting the Cost of Global Warming, uh, which is still very influential for people working in uh, economics, ethics, and environment, uh, and a more recent book uh, called Climate Matters. Next, we've got Fergus Green, who's closest to me here. Uh, Fergus is a policy analyst uh, and research advisor to Professor Stern here in the Grantham Institute uh, at LSE. Fergus has a background in political science, philosophy, and law. Uh, he's not shy of taking on new opportunities and his career is off to an excellent start. I'm allowed to say that as a com compatriot. Um, and uh, he has a long history of engaging in policy debates uh, and various forums. Um, and last but not least, we have Robin Eckersley, Professor of Political Science at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Robin has published widely in environmental politics, political theory, and international relations. She's authored, co-authored, co-edited a number of books, but in particular I want to draw attention to her 2004 book, uh, which envisages a new ecologically sensitive political order called The Green State, Rethinking Democracy and Sovereignty. So before handing over to Alina... Uh, let me just give you an idea of the format for the evening. Uh, so we're going to hear from the panellists first, so roughly three sections, right? First section, we're going to hear from the, from the panellists, then we'll give them an opportunity to comment on each other, ask each other some questions perhaps, uh, and then the third section uh, will be over to you guys and you'll have the opportunity to ask questions of any of the panellists. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Alina because she's in a better position than I am uh, to give some context to this, to this debate about international cooperation and climate change. Thanks very much.
Well, uh, good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here today and to share some thoughts with you. What I'll do over the next few minutes is uh, to give you some uh, overall idea of how the international climate change debate has been shifting over the past uh, few years and what are the key issues ahead of us as we're approaching Climate Change Summit in Paris this year. So when I look over the last 20 years at how international negotiations on climate change have progressed, um, one way in which the debate has changed is that climate change has um, clearly moved from being recognized as purely scientific issue and environmental issue that needs to be attended by scientists and environmental ministers to the one that actually goes to the core of economic activity and that requires actually fundamental transformation of social and economic systems if we are to address it. The second way in which the debate has changed is that it has been recognized that even though historically community of share of emissions globally mainly comes, well, the greater share comes from industrialized countries, emerging economies are taking um, greater share going forward. And unless there is action by all countries and the international regime is not going to be able to resolve the challenge. So we do see the shift in, in, in that recognition. And just to give you some statistics. Only over the last 10 years, from 2000 to 2010, the share of industrialized countries in annual greenhouse gas emissions, which cause climate change, has changed from 52% in 2000 to 41% in 2010. And going forward, that's going to see even more dramatic change. The third important change that is worth noting for today's discussion is the move from top-down approach to international climate action, which was based on burden sharing, so where we actually looked at uh, global climate, global uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the total carbon budget that is available. And then we engaged in discussions on what should be the ethical principle for distributing emissions and how should those quotas be assigned to various countries. Now the shift is actually towards bottom-up action that is driven by states, by pledges that countries are making. And ahead of Paris, uh, that is the process that currently is happening. Um, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. And finally, the other trend that I wanted to note is the ethical discussions around that policy debate. Again, this move from burden sharing and the framework that was adopted in the early 90s on which international action was based is based on the notion of common but differentiated responsibility of states and respective capabilities to act. Now increasingly the notion of national circumstances and also national benefits of climate action, so-called co-benefits, are taking greater importance. Now, where are we uh, actually in terms of international politics? This year is, is a crucial test to some of these challenges that I've, and changes that I've outlined. And um, in December, uh, all countries are aiming to achieve a new legal instrument, which could be a new protocol as a follow-up to Kyoto, but it could also take another form that is still open that will basically set up the framework to limit global temperature increase to 2 degrees or to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what science tells us we need to achieve if we to avoid dangerous climate change. In that debate, I see the three key areas of challenges and discussions that need to be resolved. 
One is ambition, ambition of action, and that refers to the global ambition of all countries jointly and also ambition by individual countries. And um, this time, for the first time, actually, we're seeing developing countries coming up with pledges as well for what they're going to do. So in order to stay below 2 degrees Celsius with a probability of 50-50 chance, um, global emissions need to be roughly around 35 gigaton of CO2 in the year 2030, 20 gigaton in 2050, and they should actually come to zero by the end of this century. If we look at current pledges that countries have made ahead of Paris, we have about 12 pledges submitted, ranging from absolute emission reductions and also reductions below what emissions would be if no climate action is taken. That action does not, unfortunately, add up to those figures at the moment. So what we clearly see is that Paris will be a first step. And one question that uh, perhaps the panel could also address is, what needs to be done in order to be able to increase ambition by states going forward. Um, and here, in terms of uh, ethical issues, uh, one important question ahead of Paris is how do individual ambitions of countries compare to each other? What is fair and what is ambitious enough by one country compared to what other countries are doing? And that is certainly on the agenda. The second set of issues is affordability, and that's closely linked to ambition. How do we pay and who pays for actually reducing emissions and adapting to some of the climate impacts? Uh, you might have heard the figure of 100 billion US dollars, which was promised by developed countries. Um, and the promise was that it will be mobilized uh, annually um, by the year 2020. However, if we look at the global infrastructure investment over the next 15 years, 9 trillion US dollars will be invested in infrastructure. And only um, insignificant uh, additional investment could be required to bring this to low carbon. So the, that debate is at the core of Paris. And the final set of issues is credibility of action. It's fine to put an ambition on the table, but how do we make sure the ambition actually is achieved? How credible are the pledges and how credible are the implementation policies that countries are putting forward? In that sense, there is actually some good news. Um, the recent study that we have done at the Grantham Research Institute shows that um, actually at the moment there are 800 laws and policies related to climate change that countries are implementing around the world. And that compares to 54 laws globally in the same countries around the period that Kyoto was negotiated. So a lot is actually happening at the national level. And 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions is already covered by national targets. So the question is, how can we actually incentivize and speed up this transformation? And finally, there is a question of credibility of international framework. What does Paris need to deliver in order to provide incentive and enable countries to take greater ambition in the future, and also to drive countries to become uh, leaders rather than laggards? <coughs> so in conclusion, I think I'd like to pose some questions that perhaps other panel members uh, would address in their remarks, and I know some of them definitely would. 
So if we see Paris as a critical step that is setting up the new international framework that uh, is broad and global in terms of participation as compared to Kyoto, which was only few um, industrialized countries limiting emissions, now it will be actually global, and creates incentives and mechanisms for uh, greater ambition um, and credibility nationally. So what are the key drivers? What needs to be part of that international framework to allow to do that? Should it appeal to moral and ethical responsibility to act, like most recently in the Pope Francis's encyclical, that was the appeal made to actually moral issues to act around the world? Should this framework appeal to the national co-benefits and national interests of states to actually take mitigation action, such as decreasing pollution, energy security, and others, um, and also build on those institutional processes and laws that I mentioned? Or should it focus on international mechanisms that generate finance and enable cheap technology that will actually make that transition easier? Or should it rather focus on engaging with non-state actors and help build bottom-up political consensus? So that's where I would like to leave it and uh, challenge my colleagues here to perhaps touch on some of those. Thank you. Thanks very much, Elena. So I'll hand over to John, who I believe will respond, at least in part, to some of those questions you finished off with. Thanks. Thank you, Katie. Yes, I I certainly shall. I have something to say about the moral appeal uh, to governments. Um, When when we do something that causes... This is working, is it? Am I audible? Good, thank you. Um, When we do something that causes greenhouse gas to be emitted... That gas spreads around the world and it does harm to lots of people uh, over the world. And that's an injustice. Uh, We're not normally permitted morally to harm other people for um, uh, our own uh, benefit. And when this is added up across all the people who emit greenhouse gas, it's a very large uh, injustice. And we naturally find uh, injustice... Um, morally repulsive. I think this is a deep human instinct to be opposed to uh, 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 injustices. So it's not surprising that many of the philosophers who write about uh, climate change focus on this injustice that we do to other people by uh, emissions. And in doing that, they hope to change our behavior by appealing to this deep moral instinct which, which we have. But I'm sorry to say I don't think they'll succeed. Um, If we're to control climate change, we need governments uh, to act. Individuals cannot do it uh, by their own efforts. And that's because, um, if for no other reason, most individuals actually won't act uh, morally. Most people in the world are not inclined to do much about uh, climate change. Individuals cannot be expected to play their part out of their own accord in controlling climate change. So it means the governments are going to have to use their coercive powers to get it done, their coercive powers of taxation and 
of uh, regulation, they're going to have to compel everybody to play their part in reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions. But I'm sorry to say that governments do not have this moral instinct against justice, injustice that we as individuals often do. I remember when George Bush announced that the U.S would not ratify the Kyoto Protocol, he explained this by saying it was not in the American interest. I I must say I was shocked because it wasn't supposed to be in the American interest. It was supposed to be something that the U.S. ought to do for the sake of the world uh, as a whole and to correct some injustices. So I was shocked, but I later realized that actually Bush was merely, really, just stating a fact. It is a fact that the U.S. will not do anything that's not in the interests uh, of the U.S., and the same goes for many other governments. Moreover, not a, it's not only that governments are interested only in the, the, concerned only with their national interests, they're also short-sighted about what these interests are. The great Welfare economist uh, A.C. Pigou wrote, It's the clear duty of government, which is the trustee for unborn generations, to watch over and defend the exhaustible natural resources of the country from rash and reckless spoliation. However, I'm sorry to say that governments will just not fulfill this clear duty. They care much more about winning the next election. So actually, I think there's little future in appealing to the morality of governments. I just think they haven't got enough morality to be appealed to. Little future in that and in concentrating on the injustice that's done by emissions of greenhouse gas. It's a large injustice, certainly, but there are also many very large harms of other sorts, not injustices the greenhouse gas will do. And actually, I think that the injustice is a relatively small part of the harm that greenhouse gas uh, will do. Another very great harm that's resulting from climate change is that we are leaving to our descendants the wrong mix of resources, uh, as you might put it. What we leave to our descendants are resources of two different sorts. We leave them some natural resources, atmosphere and stuff in the ground and so on. And we also leave them artificial resources that we create uh, ourselves, the things that we create by investment like roads, cities, improved agricultural improvements, energy systems, and so on. And our descendants would be much better off if we change the mix between those two things that we leave them. If we left them less of these artificial things and instead left them a cleaner atmosphere, that would be a great benefit to uh, our descendants. Um, So they would be benefited by our switching our investment from the artificial things to doing something to improve the natural resources. So far, emissions of greenhouse gas have been costless to the uh, emitter. Nobody's been charged, or only recently have people been charged, for emitting greenhouse gas. So, in effect, our economic system has just ignored the um, harm that's done to future generations by these emissions and the huge benefits that can be gained 
by uh, reducing them. We could give these huge benefits to the future generations by shifting our investment from the artificial construction of cities, roads, and so on that we do at the moment to reducing our emissions by building uh, renewable sources of energy um, uh, uh, instead and um, preventing uh, demands on, uh, on uh, energy. And moreover, we could do that at no cost to ourselves. We don't have to reduce our own standard of living in order to do this. What we have to do is shift the investment that we're doing for the future anyway from artificial things to cleaning up uh, the atmosphere. Indeed, economic theory uh, tells us that because greenhouse gas is an externality, that's to say other people bear the costs of the emission of greenhouse gas rather than the person who does the emission, the benefit that I've described can be gained at no cost uh, to anyone in any generation. This is a con conclusion that comes straight from economic theory. We're used to being told that the present generation should make some sacrifices for the sake of the future generations will be huge, will be hugely benefited if we bear some, bear some burden in reducing uh, our emissions. And that may be true, but it's also true that we can do a great benefit to future generations, not by bearing a burden ourselves, but simply shifting the nature of the investment that we do uh, for their sake. And I believe that um, that's what negotiations among governments should aim at, a way of shifting investment from the things that we do commonly at the moment to much more investment in reducing greenhouse uh, gas emissions. That means we don't have to put heavy demands on the morality of governments in doing something about that. We don't have to ask them to offer sacrifices um, uh, from their uh, populations. Instead of making sacrifices, they will be dividing up great, the great gains that come from reducing climate change. Sacrifices need not be uh, divided up among the nations. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy to do. Achieving this benefit, which could be achieved without a sacrifice, is not very easy to bring about. Were there a world government that controlled investment, it could simply shift investment away from artificial construction towards greenhouse gas, uh, limiting greenhouse gas emissions. It could do it by command. But we have to manage this shift within the capitalist system that we have, where investment is controlled by private investors who do it on the basis of profits. At the present, these investors choose to create artificial resources because that's the most profitable thing uh, to do. And somehow, the finance that they control, which is being used for these investments, has to be moved into reduction of greenhouse gas. This has to be done within our economic system. In theory, you might be able to do it by taxation. Just tax away these resources. The government could tax, governments could tax them away and then use them for greenhouse gas uh, control. But the aim I'm, um, I'm, I'm offering to governments is to make this shift without expecting any sacrifice from anybody, and that even includes the capitalists who control uh, investment. Uh, 
So we don't want to make them bear a burden. And in any case, they wouldn't. These capitalists are very powerful people with the power to scupper any program that is to their disadvantage. So instead, they'll have to be induced to give up these funds that they use for artificial investment, give them up voluntarily to allow them to be used for greenhouse gas control, and that can be done by borrowing the money from them, not taxing it, but by borrowing it. That's to say, giving them an offer that makes it worth their while to lend the money to governments who can then use it for greenhouse gas control. So borrowing is going to be involved in doing what I'm proposing um, within our capitalist system. Now, there's a problem with that, which I'm sure you'll recognize, that the effect of borrowing money is to increase national debts and not all governments are in a position to increase their indebtedness now. At any rate, that's what we're very regularly told. So we will need a new financial institution to make what I'm proposing uh, possible. We need a world climate bank, in fact. Something that has enough financial clout to guarantee the loans that need to be offered to investors in order to divert money to this other sort of uh, investment. Um, and I think the one aim of international negotiations now should be to create this vital institution to allow finance to be shifted towards greenhouse gas reduction uh, in this way. I'm thinking of the sort of thing that happened after the Second World War when the IMF and the World Bank were created as financial institutions with enough clout because they were supported by very powerful governments, with enough clout to guarantee the loans that would allow the recovery of the world economy after the destruction of the Second World War. I think we should uh, um, devote the efforts of the international community to trying to create an institution of that sort. Thank you. Thanks, John. Okay, I'm handing over to Fergus now, uh, who's also concentrating on the winnings from uh, climate change mitigation, but focusing rather on national co-benefits. Okay, so what I want to do today is go right back to first principles and to interrogate the theoretical rationale for international climate change cooperation in the first place. And I want to be very clear that I'm only talking here about climate change mitigation, that is, actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So when it comes to thinking about the rationale for international climate cooperation, I'm guessing that most people have in their minds a kind of textbook story of a classic global collective action problem that goes something like this. So for any single country, acting to cut greenhouse gas emissions is a costly burden. It involves imposing direct and immediate financial costs on businesses and households in exchange for an incremental reduction in the risk of climate impacts in the very distant future. Now that, that incremental reduction in climate risk is also enjoyed by every other state, without them necessarily having to do anything to reduce emissions, because the atmosphere is a global commons. 
This means that every country has an incentive to free ride on the uh, emissions reductions of others. And the tragic result is that mitigation is underprovided globally. And the practical policy implications of this story in the classic formulation is that we need international cooperation to try and change countries' material incentives to reduce emissions. One model that has been attempted in the past is to create a kind of comprehensive international treaty um, that fairly allocates the burden of reducing emissions among states and then tries to develop international institutions to force countries to achieve their allocated share. So what I want to argue today is that this classic story uh, is fundamentally flawed. I'm going to argue, firstly, that most of the mitigation action that's required can be done in ways that are nationally net beneficial for countries, even if you put aside uh, the long-term climate change benefits of that, that action. And that there are other, more important reasons why mitigation action is being underprovided. Um, and they typically uh, are located at the in the domestic sphere regarding domestic politics and institutions. And that thirdly, therefore, our policies and other forms of social agency on climate change need increasingly to focus on the real barriers to mitigation action rather than solving a global collective action problem that arguably doesn't exist. Okay, so to the first of these claims, that most of the required mitigation action can be done in ways that are nationally net beneficial for states. Now, the basic idea is captured uh, neatly, I think, in this cartoon. Um, for the benefit of those on the podcast, um, we're at a climate summit. Uh, the guy is presenting uh, slides showing the national net benefits from climate change other than, other than the climate benefits, like energy independence and clean air and water. And someone in the audience gets up and says, what if climate change is all a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? <laughs> now, um, don't worry, I haven't based my whole argument on a cartoon. Um, so I, I have a slightly more academic version of this argument coming out in a working paper um, that will be published by the Grantham Institute early next week, the week of 29th of June. And basically what I, what I do in that paper is put together, try and put together all of the different types of reasons why acting on climate change can be in states' national self-interest, that can be net beneficial. And what I'm going to do now is just try and very briefly illustrate a few of those key reasons. So first of all, even if you just consider the narrow private financial costs and benefits of different kinds of actions, it's clear that there are lots of mitigation actions that can be done now where the benefits, where the national benefits outweigh the costs. To give one quick example, in many parts of the world today, the cost of producing energy from unsubsidised solar um, photovoltaics uh, is cheaper than from building new coal and gas plants. Similar thing can be said about onshore wind in a number of locations and about investments in energy efficiency. But when we're thinking about the transition to a zero-carbon economy, we need also to consider how the costs and benefits of mitigation change over time. And here, the dynamics of innovation and systemic change are particularly important. Now, most clean technologies have been found to exhibit falling costs the more and more of the technologies are produced and consumed. So returning to my example of the solar panel, why is it, you know, let's consider why it is that, that, that solar PV modules have become so cheap over time. This graph um, plots the cost of solar PV modules against the amount that has been deployed. And we see a clear, clear um, case of 
the PV module costs falling very, very strongly um, over uh, as more and more of them are deployed. And this is the result of quite well understood dynamics of innovation, scale economies, um, and competition. And around innovation, particularly about the research and development of new technologies, and as more and more of these technologies are deployed, we have this learning by doing effect that leads to efficiencies in the supply chain. Now, as we get sort of towards the end of that line in, in more recent times, we're also seeing that as renewable energy technologies, solar PV, wind and other things, are increasingly being fed into the electricity grid in a lot of countries, they're coming up against some systemic barriers um, and systemic advantages that the existing fossil fuel-based uh, energy producers enjoy around physical, um, physical infrastructure, network effects, complementary technologies and institutional arrangements that favour fossil fuel-based energy production. But as we make increasing investments in, say, smart electricity grids, um, new transmission distribution infrastructure, complementary technologies like energy storage and electric vehicles, we'll start to see the energy system tip towards uh, a decentralised and predominantly renewable space system, and they will then come to enjoy those same systemic advantages that fossil fuels enjoy now. So what this means is that um, through upfront investments in clean technology innovation and in transitioning our energy system, we create benefits over the medium to long term in the, in the form of perpetually lower prices for energy services compared with a business as usual model based on fossil fuels. So, so to take um, some figures from the International Energy Agency in a report this year, they compared the costs of a low-carbon energy transition um, to, to, to avoid dangerous climate change on the one hand with a kind of business-as-usual continued investment in a fossil fuel-based system, and they find that in the, in the low-carbon scenario, between now and 2050, um, the world would save $75 trillion compared with um, the, the fossil fuel-based system. And that's, the reason for that is largely because the higher additional um, investments needed in the, the low-carbon scenario uh, pay for themselves many times over in terms of the cost savings from not having to buy um, the fossil fuels to operate the, the, the plants. OK, and finally, so I've, I've been considering up until now only the direct private financial costs and benefits. But when you're doing economic analysis, you need to also consider the full social costs and social benefits. And what we find very clearly is that for most of the needed mitigation actions, that the, um, that the social benefits of the sort of technologies and, 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 and other changes that we need are very, very high, and the social costs of our existing fossil fuel-based energy system are, are, are very high. So, for example, to take two quick examples, the health impacts caused by uh, outdoor air pollution from, bowl, uh, from, from burning coal. So just to, to look at the figures in China, um, from one type of particulate matter air pollution, the World Health Organization estimates that that type of air pollution causes uh, more than one million premature deaths a year um, from, um, uh, yeah, from that pollution. And the, the costs have been estimated at around 10% of China's GDP. Um, and of course, clean technologies don't have those kind of uh, you know, those, those pollution costs. And to take another quick example of these kind of co-benefits, so it turns out that clean technologies are incredibly fecund, much more so than dirty technologies. Because of their newness and their more general applications across different economic sectors, 
Clean technologies produce significantly more knowledge spillovers, which tend to drive innovation and growth throughout the economy. So research by some of my colleagues at the Grantham Institute looking at patent citation data finds that um, clean technologies patents are cited more than 40% more than um, dirty technology patents in the same industries. So when you put all of that together, I think there's a very strong case that the the cost-benefit profile of states' mitigation action looks a bit more like this, that there um, there are national net benefits from reducing emissions. So this suggests that there must be something else going on here. There must be some other barriers to mitigation action that are are really causing this um, insufficient global action on climate change. And I want to just briefly suggest, I think, three broad categories of such barriers. The first is about the politics. So I've said that there there are national net benefits that are available through reducing um, emissions. But of course we know that the political feasibility of the the policy reforms needed to capture those net benefits are going to be driven by the distribution of those costs and benefits. And we know that the benefits tend to accrue to the general public, um, even the national non-climate benefits, whereas the costs tend to be concentrated on a relatively small number of extremely financially and politically powerful uh, companies in the fossil fuel sector and in energy-intensive manufacturing sectors. Um, Secondly, there's also a temporal element to the distribution of costs and benefits. Most of the costs, as I alluded to earlier, are are biased towards the short term, and most of the benefits are biased towards the medium and long term, and, of course, the climate benefits towards the very long term. And, you know, what what this means, I think, is that um, it poses sort of a major challenge to political feasibility because of various institutional and cognitive mechanisms that lead to hyper-short-termism among politicians, firms and the general public. So domestic politics and distribution, I think, is one huge barrier to this transition. Um, Secondly, very briefly, I think there are also domestic institutional and governance challenges or deficits, particularly in a lot of developing countries and particularly around things like access to clean technologies and access to reasonable cost finance to invest in um, low-carbon infrastructure. And then thirdly, I think there uh, there are some areas where small group international cooperation may be necessary to realise national net benefits. I'll save this largely for the Q&A, but just quickly, um, one, one such area might be early stage cooperation on clean technology innovation. And another area might be certain sectors like highly trade exposed sectors where for one country to impose a relatively high, say, carbon price on those sectors and would lead to relatively high national costs. But if a few other countries do it, then it could potentially be nationally net beneficial. So finally, what does all this mean for for climate policy and for other kinds of social agency to deal with climate change? Well, I think what this means is that we really need to move away from this kind of top-down, outside-in model that tries to change countries' incentives from the outside to a model that's much more inside-out, that's much more about trying to overcome the domestic, political and institutional barriers to net beneficial mitigation, nationally net beneficial mitigation, but then engaging in international cooperation in more focused and strategic ways Um, that can accelerate that transition and help overcome some of those domestic barriers. So to conclude, I've argued that most of the mitigation action can be done in ways that are nationally net beneficial. 
This challenges the classic free rider conception of international climate policy and means we need to look elsewhere for explanations about why we're not seeing sufficient international climate action. And we can see that there are some very big and very powerful reasons why governments might not be acting to achieve these national net benefits. And they're largely about the intersection of domestic politics and domestic institutions um, that we have that are left over from the fossil fuel age. And therefore, we need to focus our policy and our agency in a more laser-like way on overcoming these real barriers to mitigation action rather than trying to solve one ginormous global collective action problem that doesn't exist. Thanks very much. Thanks, Fergus. Over to Robin now. Well, thank you very much. I thought I'd use my time, firstly, just to make a few quick responses um, to my colleagues before I launch into um, what I have to say. Um, Regarding the international negotiations, I think we've had a really great overview. It's a really good curtain raiser. I just want to add a few supplementary comments. Back in the original Framework Convention, there was an article that um, talked about uh, all parties um, discharging their obligations in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. We call that CBDR. And that was seen to give rise to a leadership responsibility uh, to mitigate on the part of developed countries. And the Kyoto Protocol was an attempt to enact that. Um, We all know the US didn't join up, and eventually uh, the parties had to go around the block again and have another go, which was Copenhagen. And in order to draw in all the major emitters, they moved to this bottom-up pledge and review approach, which is pretty much where things are at now. But... uh, The reason these negotiations have moved at a um, glacial pace are many and varied, but one of the core reasons are distributional struggles, and particularly a division between developed and developing countries. Everyone acknowledges now that major emitters in the developing world need to be party to this new agreement, but there still is a disagreement, or there's a kind of bitterness on the part of developing countries that developed countries never really did fulfil their leadership obligations. But the parties have all but given up trying to come up with a a principled burden-sharing approach. And the way they've done that is basically opt for what I call do-it-yourself climate policy, DIY climate policy. At Lima last year, this was confirmed. I was at the negotiations and I watched the text grow and grow and grow. And one day they'd put CBDR in, the next day it would come out. And it went in and out and in and out. And in the final day it went back in again. So all parties have to um, submit indicative nationally determined contributions, they're called, which will then be summed up in a report in November and presented at Paris so we can see what the mitigation shortfall is. But what's really interesting, in the the Lima call to climate action, they, they put common but differentiated responsibilities back in in accordance with national circumstances. Now, that language is a direct direct replication of the language that was in the US-China joint joint statement last November. So clearly this was acceptable to the G2 and very important. But another, what NGOs at the meeting thought was a great win was that in submitting their INDCs to the UNFCCC secretariat, each party would need to justify why they thought their commitment, their indicative commitment, was fair and ambitious. So I've poured over all the um, submissions that have been made thus far 
The US simply declared their submission to be fair and ambitious. They provided no argument. It was seen as self-evident. The EU was disappointing. In fact, there's only one country that actually addresses those issues, and that's Switzerland. Switzerland. And it does a very good job. So you might say, well, John's right. Countries aren't interested in fairness, and they don't seem particularly interested in ambition. But I would like to... um, argue against that, because I think what's going to happen now is all the politics is going to shift to the politics of review, and and CBDR will be wheeled back in to judge both the fairness and ambition of different countries' INDCs. So it hasn't gone away, and it's never going to go away. And although the Kyoto Protocol will be dead from 2020 on, it played a crucial role as midwife. And here... You might say, well, do we need leadership for collective action problems to be solved? And certainly the EU has been the recognised leader throughout most of the negotiations. And you might say, well, that leadership hasn't really induced the sort of followership that you'd hope. And that's certainly true. The EU's not been able to really influence the G2 or the basic group. That's China, India, Brazil and South Africa. But if if it hadn't committed to a second commitment period to the Kyoto Protocol, then there's no way the major emitters in the developing world would be party to what was the Durban platform, which was the roadmap for the current negotiations heading toward Paris. So in a sense, the EU leadership has actually been very important. John, you've converted political science into the dismal science and made a case for um, appealing, I guess, more to self-interest. But... I guess I'd just like to put a question to you, and that is, why wouldn't you use the existing Green Climate Fund and the existing multilateral development banks? They've already started to make a move here. It was because the the US decided that it would no longer use its public finance uh, for development, for developing countries to fund coal-fired stations anymore, that enabled um, the World Bank and the IMF to adopt that policy as well. And so one of the big news stories since Copenhagen is the growth in the fossil fuel divestment movement, and it's going like gangbusters. And it rests on a beautiful locked-in sort of twin argument of the moral repulsiveness of, of burning unburnable carbon, because we need to keep about four-fifths of, avail- of reserves in the ground if we're going to solve this problem. But it's also a, a great financial risk, and a lot of investors will be left with stranded assets. So we see... This whole movement going gangbusters, it's extraordinary. You see the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is now starting to pull out of coal. We see lots of banks, we see lots of city at the city level, and of course the university, universities that's taken off as well. So this is one of the really big stories. And the more this grows, the more we're going to see fossil fuels lose their social licence to operate. Coal would be the easiest one to pick off first. Um, Oil's going to be a lot harder because of its um, link in so many different areas, not just transport fuels, but it will happen eventually. So finally, Fergus, that's a fantastic argument to show. Uh, You're basically taking the Russians' approach to collective action problems and fundamentally challenging their assumption and swivelling it around and creating a new default assumption. And I think it's a great one and it it should be spread out there, I guess, Um, in the internet and it should be required bedtime reading for Tony Abbott, Prime Minister of Australia. (laughs) However, I know that even if he was forced to read it, it would not change his mind. Not one bit. And so we know that politics doesn't always take on board science, nor does it take on economic advice. Politics has its own rationality. And I've been engaged in a major comparative research project called What Makes a Climate Leader? And I've looked 
in particular at developed countries and how different countries have interpreted CBDR since the beginning of the negotiations or since they've signed the UNFCCC back in 1992. And if you apply an international relations rationalist approach, they would say, well, you can predict whether a country is a leader or a laggard depending on two simple things. It's relative fossil fuel dependence and it's relative vulnerability. So you can draw a four-cell matrix. So if you're highly fossil fuel dependent and especially vulnerable to climate change, uh, you're going to be a laggard and you can fill out the rest of those cells accordingly. And it's a beautiful parsimonious theory, but it's a really poor predictor of how states operate, except at the extreme margin of very heavy fossil fuel dependence. So... What have I learned in my comparative study, and I'm looking at Germany, Norway, the UK, the US and Australia. Well, I could now draw up an identikit of the perfect state. I know all the features, uh, the family features that you need in a state for it to be a leader, a fully-fledged leader, but no such state exists. I can tell you that political economy is very important. Uh, relative fossil fuel dependence is a, is a factor. I can tell you that the nature of domestic political coalitions is very important. I can tell you that um, if there are powerful concentrated losers, then you've, got, then you've really raised the bar. That electoral systems and electoral boundaries really matter because if you have dependent regional communities and workers um, built around fossil fuel industries, then that's going to change the nature of politics for that particular electorate. Party competition is absolutely crucial because one of the best predictors of climate leadership is if you have bipartisan support for climate change, or particular, and that usually means you get people on the right who get climate change. So that's a really important predictor. The nature of the political system, um, the, more adversarial, the more adversarial, the more difficult it is. The degree of political commitment by leaders, if they're prepared to stake their career on it, then you're more likely to see climate action. Civic epistemologies, the nature of um, cultures of risk assessment, hugely vary the way in which you do a cost-benefit analysis. So, Fergus, what you've done is change the assumptions of a rationalist approach, but not the logic of rationalism. And here in political science, social science in general, international relations as well, there's a huge divide between rationalists and constructivists as to how you understand um, state behaviour and the logic of cooperation. For rationalists, they take interests as fixed, given, and exogenous to social interaction. And they'll make predictions based on that. I'm more of a social constructivist where interests are malleable, they're socially constructed, and interests and morality or norms, they're tethered together in constellations. You show me a state and I'll tell you their national identity and their international role conception and I'll have a better idea of how they'll, how they'll understand their national interests. So if I do a discourse analysis, which I have, I haven't finished it, but I've done many of my countries. Let me give you an example and I'll finish on this because I've probably used up my time. Norway and Australia in 2007 both elected social democratic um, governments, both with a reform agenda. Um, they're both fossil fuel dependent states. Admittedly, Norway has a lot of hydro for its domestic electricity generation, but its emissions are rising and its marginal abatement costs are very high and it's incredibly dependent on fossil fuel exports. And it has a major company, Start Oil, partly government owned, which is the source of it. It's why it's filthy rich and has the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world. I looked at the way in which the political executive in those two countries narrated their responsibility for climate change, both domestically and internationally, and they couldn't have been more different. 
The Norwegian discourse talked about Norway as a good state, Norwegians as good people, and Norway being a leader and uh, caring about justice, a long tradition of social egalitarianism, a country that was once very poor, that got lucky, discovered oil in the 60s, squirreled it away and built a welfare state up. And they want to see everyone in the world enjoy their luck and good fortune. So they have one of the biggest overseas um, development assistance programs in the world. And so although that's going to cost them in the short term, and that's how they understand it, whether, whether there are no net benefits or whether there are net benefits, their perceptions are it is going to cost them in the short term. Swivel it around and you look at the default discourse in Australia, which for a brief period Kevin Rudd tried to dent, and that is that leadership is a sucker's game, the emphasis is focusing on the upfront costs of action rather than the long-term costs of inaction. It's addressing Australians, hailing Australian citizens as nervous Nellies who are only concerned about their hip pocket. And that leadership is literally a sucker's game, so the, the smartest thing to do is wait till last and then make a move so there'll be no cost. And this is what you see in the discourse. Rudd changed that for a period, but he lost his nerve. So here you have... If, I can, if you look at international role conceptions, you can see the way in which that is used to construct national interests, but that this is malleable, and because politics do respond to what voters think, if campaigns can change that, politicians will change. And in that sense, mor morality does have a huge impact on politics if the campaigns are successful. I'll stop at that point. Thank you. Just for the benefit of the podcast, I'm, I'm just going to remind you the speakers. Our first speaker was Alina Avichenkova, then we had John Broom, then Fergus, Bro Fergus Green, and then uh, Robin Eckersley. Uh, so now we're running short of time. Sorry, we, I haven't, we haven't been very disciplined. So there's not too much time for panel, within panel discussion, because I do want to save time for questions uh, for the audience. But I, I was wondering, maybe uh, John would like to kick off uh, given that Robin directed a question directly to you? <laughs> I'd be, yeah, I'd be very happy to because I certainly don't want to disagree with what Robin was saying. One thing she, she said was that it may be that existing financial institutions could carry the burden, which I'm saying could do the job, which I say needs to be done, which is to support loans to uh, do greenhouse um, gas reduction. If they will, then that's fine. Um, it would be excellent if they could, but they will need a lot of backing because the amount of investment needed is of the order of a percent or two of GDP per year for quite a long time. So this will amount to a lot of loans to be added to uh, national debts in aggregate across the world. And it will take a very strong financial institution to do that. I'm, I, I, I like divestment. I mean, I think I'm really quite optimistic about divestment, as a matter of fact. Um, what it will do is remove the power of the oil companies, or the fossil fuel companies, um, the coal companies uh, certainly, and the other fossil fuel companies if we're, if we're lucky. Um, fossil fuel just does not seem to be a very good investment at the moment. Um, the amount of fossil fuel that is... Uh, held 
owned, the, the reserves that are owned by fossil fuel companies at the moment, um, these approved reserves are something like five times as much as can be burnt, uh, according to the IPCC, without creating a severe risk of dangerous uh, climate change. So those reserves simply cannot be burnt without um, destroying the economy on which their value uh, depends. Yet, as I understand it, the share prices still... Uh, of these fossil fuel companies still reflect all of those reserves as an asset that the companies own. That's a bubble. Uh, once that's pricked, I think maybe we will, uh, we will see them lose their power. And from what Fergus was saying, that seems to be what we need. Um, I, what, what Fergus was saying seemed to be really very cheerful. Um, you know, the, the technology is already going to ensure that we can produce energy um, from renewables more cheaply than can we can produce it from uh, fossil fuel. And the immediate question that arises then is why? I, I must say it leaves me slightly sceptical because it's, it, it's easy to think that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuel if you concentrate on the best practice or the renewables that are, uh, are doing very well. Whether this could be true all over makes... But I haven't read the report, so at the moment I'm, I have to uh, believe it. But if it's true then, what's stopping us is the political power that he was talking about, particularly the fossil fuel companies. And if that is destroyed by the disinvestment movement, that will be all to the good. Would you like to comment, uh, uh, Fergus? Yeah, sure. I might just brief, briefly respond to Robin's comments. And um, I mean, I'm in furious agreement with you. And as someone who sort of sees the benefit of both the rationalist school and the social constructivist school, um, really my motivation for, for, for doing this paper <coughs> and, and, and speaking on this topic from a rationalist perspective um, is precisely because ideas matter and how we frame problems influences how we think about the solutions and I and I and I I really think that this kind of traditional framing of the pro problem has really captured a lot of people's imaginations and is the kind of default assumption about way the way we think about this problem and so I thought that but I thought that the only way to kind of change a lot of people's minds is if you like to, to have the argument on their own t on their own terms yeah. and so that's 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 a lot of my motivation but I think in my comments about the, the, the politics and the challenges of domestic action and also some of the opportunities, which I strongly agree with you, there are currents and there are opportunities that can be capitalised upon. And so what I'm really saying is we need to focus on, on those and not on sort of what the false problems are and really do, you know, allocate all our attention to overcoming these, um, th these big, big challenges and barriers around politics um, and institutions. And just very quickly, one thing, you know, I really like the, the analysis that you've done and that others are also doing on the, the, the politics of, of action. Um, and what I think that the kind of net national net benefits approach adds to that is it, it gives reformers, it gives the sort of progressive motivated reformers, if you like, more to play with, right? Because it, it, it shows us that there are actually a lot of shorter term, I mean, still medium and long term, but, but more short term than the climate benefits, um, benefits that can be allocated across the economy, ways to build different coalitions around, um, you know, around the health, health benefits, 
uh, and around um, you know long run cheaper energy and, and so on. So I think that can help in that kind of constructivist politics. Shall we hand it over to the audience? Okay, they're keen to go, so I think that's a good choice. So I'm going to take groups of uh, three questions. So uh, there's a roaming mic. I should also warn you that we're we're podcasted, so you will be your voice will be um, on the podcast. Uh, I hope that's all right. Uh, so this lady, um, yes, uh, and then this gentleman. Hi. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, my name is Netta Maydav. Um, I'm actually working for the government for the Department of Energy and Climate Change, and I'm one of the negotiators, um, currently part of the negotiation team for the Paris Agreement. So um, it has been a real pleasure to come here today and to get the academic perspective of the agreement and our work, and I think we should all do that more. Um, so thank you for that. Um, just a just a couple of uh, questions. Um, first, uh, to Dr. Averchenkova, you started um, your address by stating quite correctly, in my view, that Paris um, should not be seen as the end game. Paris would probably be a very important milestone and a beginning of a process um, that would get us um, on that pathway to two degrees. Um, and that's a question, you know, that is taken s straight from our brainstorming um, that, that we're doing um, at the office, is how do you ensure, on the one hand, you want parties to put really good indices now. You want to lock in the right level of ambition for Paris, but without really knowing what kind of review uh, mechanism we would get in the end, uh, but we, we are what we do know is that there is the shadow of the future here. There is it's it's you know the, this is a game that is continuous. Um, how do you ensure you don't lock in low ambition because parties would know that they would need to come back with uh, better offers in the future? So that is something that I'm very interested in. Sorry, you only have uh, time for one question. Is that it? Uh, yes, I think so. Okay, so I would leave it. I would leave it at that. Thanks, and I'm just going to hold that question for the moment and just take one more question before I hand it over to the panel. Uh, yes. Good evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight um, and to have the opportunity to listen to the eminent panel assembled on the stage here at the LSE, which is my alma mater. I'm a former staff member of the school as well as a PhD student. Um, uh, I represent tonight um, a focal point organizations of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, and I'd like to... Uh, which is part of uh, a pro bono initiative I am directing. Um, and we have been invited to develop some uh, uh, initiatives, and in particular to select and to invite you also to help us select uh, speakers for a panel in September ahead of the meeting in Paris, which is going to look at economic diversification and livelihoods. Um, the area is climate change adaptation, uh, and I'd like to mention this to you uh, with the aim and the hope to involve you in this initiative. Is there a question? 
Uh, well, yes, it is, because, of course, it has to do with whether you'd be interested in being involved and in which capacity, because there can be an answer, not just from the policy arena, but from the academic debate, which might have a deeper level influence on economic diversification activities, which reflect both in policy and in practice. Okay, you'll need to ask the question now. <laughs> of course. Um, what would be your level of interest in relation to this activity if uh, <coughs> would there be yeah. a, an opportunity to be involved in this panel ahead of the meeting in Paris in September organized by the UNFCCC? Thank you. Okay, so preliminary uh, discussions prior to the... Uh, to the meeting in Paris. Um, so I'm just going to invite the uh, panel to respond to both of those questions. Perhaps Elena would like to kick off with sure. the role of Paris. Sure. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a million-dollar question, of course. Uh, what, what, uh, what can we do to ensure there is continuity after Paris? And I think a good start would be to actually agree that it's a first step and there is a date for when countries are coming together again and looking at the implementation of INDCs to date. Um, and uh, I know some countries are suggesting five-year periods, um, some are going for longer, and some, I think China in particular, still, well, is not sure that they want to commit to a particular date in Paris. So there, there needs to be a date uh, so that it's clear for everyone that, that that is coming and that they will be also, you know, reviewed and held accountable to whether, you know, they've actually delivered on the pledge made and also asked about what are the actions in the future. I think the, the second important element is, is actually the transparency of actions. And I think um, we know that the, um, the paper that UNFCCC will publish for Paris negotiations um, that Robin mentioned that paper will not look at individual contributions by countries. That was a political compromise in Lima to look at the joint effort. Um, so that is a kind of resistance uh, at, at engaging actually into negotiations of individual pledges. But there are organizations watching over what countries are doing, climate action tracker, delegations are doing assessments of what's going on. So that is an important part in terms of creating additional pressure. And, and finally, I think that, that comes back to the earlier discussion. I think individuals do matter, um, and actually citizens, uh, what, uh, what is actually a pressure that's coming from electorate in, in, in each particular country. And so I think the, the Paris Conference INDCs are actually creating very important, interesting national debates. Some countries like Mexico, for example, have gone through quite an extensive national consultation process, and I think that's really key for ramping up ambition going forward. So I think we shouldn't underestimate, actually, the, the role of individuals and national pressure groups as well on this. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, my response would be go for shorter review cycles of five years, not ten years. Make sure with each cycle there's no backsliding and there is significant improvement, unless there's some force majeure or something like that. Um, but we know that the, the landing zone for, for Paris has been uh, prepared. And I can see the flight path or glide path towards it following the G2s joint announcement last year. So the most important thing is that it, for, for the G2 is that it be universal, so everyone's in, and that it be flexible. And the price of that is that you're not going to get the ambition and nor are the commitments going to be expressed as legally binding. 
They will be referred to in some way in the agreement. It will probably be a proper treaty within the meaning of the Vienna Convention, but the nationally determined contributions will be housed somewhere else. So they can be revised over time, perhaps through COP decisions, but they will not be legally binding. You won't get China, the US or India signing it, if they are. But, and here's an interesting little bit of information, um, Obama can sign that and he won't have to present it to the US Senate for its advice and consent. And there's a big legal debate in the US at the moment about this, and of course the Republicans will try and take him to the Supreme Court. But the US president often signs an international treaty and doesn't take it to the Senate for ratification if it can be argued that it's already US law and it doesn't require the passage of legislation through Congress. And because Obama's um, clean power plan and his other initiatives have all been done through his executive power, in this instance relying on an existing law, the Clean Air Act, that was enacted way back in the early 70s under Richard Nixon's regime, um, because the Supreme Court has determined that greenhouse gases are pollutants within the meaning of that act. So he doesn't think he has to take it to the Senate. And so even if you get a Republican president elected, rather than Hillary Clinton, in the next presidential elections, it's also going to be very tricky for them to undo that as well, because it takes a long time to get those rules in place, and therefore it's very difficult for them to be... Um, I guess, taken apart. So that gives me some heart. But the main problem that the leaders are going to have when they leave Paris, if there is agreement, is to manage public disappointment about the lack of ambition. So the point then is to turn around and say, well, it's not everything we want now, but we've designed a really dynamic process that's going to ratchet that up quite quickly over time. If that happens, I'll be pleased with the outcome. Great. Um, let's have another couple of questions. Uh, one lady there and... Uh, yeah, this lady first. Sorry, I'm being a bit confusing. Cause I, yep, you're, yep, thank you. And, yeah. uh, by the way, the previous question, I think, is a matter we can discuss afterwards. Uh, and I don't mean to be the question bully, but if you can make your questions as succinct as possible, that would be great. Thanks. <laughs> um, I'm Sally Davies. Um, this is a question for uh, Robin and Fergus, I think. Um, to what extent are the strategies needed to address the barriers to action under the constructivist and rationalist framings complementary? And how should we assess the prospects of success for international cooperation under each? Fergus, if we take your framing as, as a rationalist problem of states failing to recognise that um, mitigation is in their interest, what is, who and what will uh, help states realise that? And Robin, um, how, if we accept that it's a matter of helping states change the self-conception and um, construction of their interests by way of their national discourse, what is the role of international institutions or international actors in changing that discourse? Okay, great. Hold, that, hold those thoughts and we'll just take one more question. Uh, Robert Gibson, Hong Kong University of Science Technology. Um, the funding for the Green Climate Fund. In 2010, Lord Stern was part of a high-level panel recommending how money could be raised in perpetuity for that fund. What has happened since then? At Lima, we had, the, at the whim of politicians, various amounts effectively donated, nothing in perpetuity. If the Green Climate Fund only depends on ad hoc donations, then it cannot commit to long-term programs. If, on the other hand, we had something, for example, that, that was in that paper about putting a levy on international bunkers in perpetuity and there was some form of clubs arrangement which locked it in, 
So any one country would have diff- well opting out. They would they would be charged the other end of the line. If we had something like that, then the Green Climate Fund could be committing to projects now where they pay in ten years' time, and that would provide the um, certainty for private business to go out and find the money to do the projects, and when they deliver, <coughs> they get paid. We could get much more action. Okay, so a couple of questions there. Okay. Uh, so I'm happy to take the, the first one. Um, so I, mean, I think there are complementary, they are sort of complementary strategies, and I think the best <coughs> domestic response to climate change kind of harnesses the best rational knowledge, but with a kind of nuanced understanding of kind of constructivist dynamics that, that we need. So, so to, take one, to take one example, right? So the kind of more rationalist approach typically predominates in treasuries and ministries of finance. They, they do these kind of economic cost-benefit analyses of action. And if they can be convinced that they need to look beyond kind of narrow models, um, economic models of costs and benefits that make all of these assumptions, which leave out some of the most important effects, like the co-benefits of climate change action, like the uh, innovation dynamics and the systemic advantages of incumbent energy technologies, then we can start to develop tools and approaches where they can actually assess and quantify and monetize, recognizing the limitations of that, but, but will get us much further to... Um, to actually national level, national level action that starts to address some of these, these benefits. Um, but then I think the, in terms of the politics of getting us to that point, I mean, I, I completely agree with Robin that um, there's no doubt that, you know, Tony Abbott's not going to... Uh, the Tony Abbott's of the world are going to recognise that this is in our national, um, national interest um, and, and respond to it. But, um, but I, as I said, I think we can use that recognition of wider net benefits that are available to help build political coalitions of actors who will benefit from not just reforms on climate but also complementary reforms like um, other tax reforms that will not only increase efficiency but could make most people better off through the transition. So it's sort of combining that rationalist approach with a kind of more nuanced understanding of politics and power and how we're actually going to get um, the policies that do realise those benefits. Yes, I think your question to me was that what role could international institutions play to help frame state self-perception or role, if I understand you correctly. Um, I, I really think that this is going to be won or lost in the national capitals, particularly the way the game has shifted now to national action. Um, although there is now a much broader climate regime complex where lots of complementary actions taking place. But if you're looking at the really big players, they tend to be norm makers, not norm takers. The US is very good at exporting its norms, but it won't import them. That's an expression of US republicanism, and it's embodied in the Constitution, which is why you need a two-thirds Senate vote, um, because the US wishes to be author of its own law and not be beholden to any other. So the framing at the national level is really important. And I think Fergus's argument does give um, sucker to campaigns, campaigners to, uh, to, to turn around and mess with the cost-benefit analysis framework, subvert it effectively. Um, regarding the broader rationalist constructivist debate, I think, I mean, I'm for theoretical pluralism. It's good to use rationalism because it's wonderfully parsimonious as a predictor. It doesn't always work, but if you can narrow down the scope conditions, sometimes it does, and it's quite elegant. 
Although I'm a social constructivist by nature, I don't reject rational choice theory. I think when it's done well, it can work. But this is all about framing. And I think the framing is absolutely important. And so if we can, I guess, fight economists and modelers and, and so forth on their own terms, that's all for the good. And the point about um, green climate finance, I think I couldn't agree more, um, whether it be a tax on bunker fuels or a Tobin tax. I mean, one of the problems with the green climate fund was that at Copenhagen it was supposed to be new and additional to aid. And therefore what countries are doing now are robbing their aid budget and putting it into green climate finance because they still see it as a zero-sum game. Plus it was supposed to be public finance, but we know we really need to mobilise private finance as well, and that's a real headache. And yet developing countries get very cross if they can see that there's a bit of a pee and thimble happening. And that's tricky. But I agree, we need something in perpetuity without doubt. I'd like to add to, to this last point in terms of climate finance. I think the key to addressing finance challenge, given the scale of investment that's required, is actually not to focus our attention on one small, well, rather small institution that Green Climate Fund or another fund can rather be. And $100 billion, uh, you know, the, the target that was set for mobilizing within um, the climate process, it's a very important one, but it's a tiny bit compared to $90 trillion investment in infrastructure. And so one issue with Green Climate Fund, it's, it's been created by a political process and it's managed by a political process and it's rather young institution. So I think uh, before they even get to the challenge of raising finance, they will face a challenge of disbursing the money wisely that they uh, have already got commitment for. But I also fully agree that having a recurring mechanism for raising finance, uh, it's, it's a more sustainable way of doing it. And we have example of adaptation fund under the Kyoto Protocol, which was set up to function as a tax or kind of levy on clean development mechanism. The problem with that fund, with that um, example, was that the carbon market, the trades uh, in carbon credits, they have gone down um, quite a lot because of um, the way the Kyoto negotiations have progressed. Um, but it would be great to design a sustainable mechanism. In particular, on your uh, example of um, uh, taxing bunker fuels and kind of shipping, there has been little progress in the international process to be able to push that idea forward. And in general, I think international sectoral mechanisms, they face similar problem that Fergus has alluded to, which is the kind of political economy and the different costs and benefits that various states will face, they become even more challenging when you try to bring it into the climate negotiations and they go beyond kind of environmental portfolios. So I think actually on the positive side where we can have a potential for Green Climate Fund to play a role is on the private sector window, for example, where they're currently looking at innovative ways like such risk guarantees for investments where you can using the same pot of money actually actually kind of stimulate finance, um, financing many more projects than if you just do direct grant investment. Great. Uh, yes, so maybe the gentleman at the back there. Thanks. Uh, Ian Goff from uh, the LSE. This is directed to John Broome. Uh, I appreciate the sort of realpolitik approach which everyone seems to be taking and uh, dynamic uh, seeking win-win situations. Um, but I'm not so sure that the distributional issues can be parked in the way 
that you, you're suggesting. Um, I mean, even if we focus on a finance fund uh, and we're, we're reducing consumption and investing more, the question of who bears the costs of that arise, and, and then the questions of uh, you know basic needs versus dangerous luxuries, and Pope Francis's uh, sort of agenda is is still there. I'm not sure that inequality and, and injustice arguments can be parked in the way that seems to be suggested. Okay, great. Hold that thought, John. Uh, just the the lady. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Michal Shinwell, and I'm just following on that thought. Uh, I wanted to ask what do you think the correct measures are um, to look at justice, at, at just um, targets of countries? If we're looking at GDP or are we looking at other indicators like infant mortality, if we're looking at education, if we're looking at capital Okay, uh, so what's the measure of national Which welfare? indicators? When we're, when we're talking about uh, justice in, uh, in uh, taking uh, steps towards climate change, mm -hmm. then what are the measurements, what are the indicators we should be looking at? Sure. John, we'll go back. Thank you very much for, for those questions. Perhaps, perhaps I can just broaden the issue uh, a bit. Um, the world is a very unjust place, and the distribution of wealth around the world is a very bad one. It's extremely unequal. So we have two problems, at least. The world faces two problems that need to be fixed. The climate change problem and the maldistribution of wealth uh, around the world. And I am worried when I find that these two are being linked together. That happens implicitly if you do a cost-benefit analysis of climate change and responding to climate change, in which what you aim at is the best outcome from your climate change policy. Because the, if you aim for the best outcome, then that means you're taking on board implicitly all the problems of the world, including the great maldistribution that there is. So I think that means you're ham hampering the opportunities for doing something about climate change. If you ask the policies that we adopt to deal with climate change also to improve the distribution of wealth within the world, you're not likely to make progress on either. The inequality in the world is a huge and terrible problem, which is actually harder to solve than the problem created by climate change, which is principally a problem of externality, leading to the sort of inefficiency that I described. So I would like to see these questions separated. Now, if you believe what I said about climate change... It would be possible to deal with the climate change problem without making distribution worse because you can arrange it in such a way that nobody is made worse off. I didn't quite understand what you said about who bears the costs. The idea is there are no costs born, so no one bears any costs. And there's a huge benefit to be gained by dealing with the problem, the externalities created by climate change. That benefit is available, if anything, to improve distribution in the world, because we can hope that it will be used um, to improve the well-being of the people in 
who, who do not contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and are also among the poorest people uh, in the world. So we should be able to improve distribution, but I don't think we should think of that as the aim of dealing with climate change. Now, you asked about the measure. Um, I, I'm, I was speaking at a, in a, in a, at a general level. Um, what I meant was the well-being of the people. That's what I think of as the benefit, how well off the people are. Um, uh, of course, it's not easy to measure that, but we can tell from the theory that it should be possible to make the people better off without having a measure of it. We don't need to measure it if we can deal with the externality. Just on that. Yeah, sure. Just very briefly, um, you asked what's the best indicator. Well, of course, there's a thousand ways in which you can measure that. You can look at historical emissions, aggregate emissions, per capita emissions, cumulative per capita emissions. You can look at contraction and convergence or Eco Equity Institute's um, Responsibility and Capacity Index, which I think is a pretty good one. But what you find in their real world in the negotiations is that each state chooses a metric and a baseline that's most self-serving. And so... And, and this is what the INDC, INDC process is doing, um, you know, in accordance with national circumstances. And so it, it remains for everyone else to judge and to call that out. Um, because the more you have a wilderness of single instances of different metrics and different, different criteria, the comparability of effort becomes really difficult. And some people say relative effort should be one of the judges. So it's not something you'll get the parties... Uh, the parties won't be able to agree on but you can use some of these measures to call out really self-serving um, commitments. And I think that's the beauty. They, they're a critical vantage point, and NGOs use them, other countries use them. So in peer review, you'll get that, and also with um, transnational civil society review, you'll get that calling out, and that's going to play a really important role. Uh, now, I'm just going to ask for one more question. Uh, maybe the gentleman behind you... Thank you. <laughs> Hi there. <clears throat> to play devil advocate slightly, um, given that I and indeed most of the members of this room won't be around to experience uh, probably the most adverse effects um, or consequences of climate change, my question for you is uh, why should I care about climate change? Um, I might let everyone briefly comment on that in about 30 seconds each. <laughs> uh, Fergus, I'm going to hand it to you first. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, well, I mean, my whole presentation was could be read as uh, a list of reasons why you should care, even if you don't care about climate change. Um, so, I, you know, I, I basically, you know, um, avoiding air pollution from coal-fired power, um, the extraordinary um, fecundity of uh, clean technologies driving innovation, potentially the next uh, energy industrial revolution, um, according to people like Lord Stern, and I, and I agree with him. I think he's absolutely right that that has the potential to do that. Um, uh, you know, if you want lower lower cost energy services over the over the long run from a system based uh, on you know on clean technologies, so all of these kind of reasons are, are things why you know why you should care about climate change. If I can just very very quickly, um, I, I so John's right in that I'm cheerful about 
the technical and economic possibilities for transition, I think that they're, they're enormous um, and that they're, they can be done in countries' best interests, but I am much more pessimistic about the politics and the challenges that, and institutional challenges that lie there. Thanks, Fergus. <laughs> Robin? We humans are social animals. We depend on our social connections to others and therefore we, we believe in purposes beyond ourselves. If we didn't, then we'd move out on an island and not have any company at all. <laughs> Very succinct. <laughs> yes, I think my answer is about the same. Uh, the reason is a moral one. Your emissions are all the time doing harm to other people, and in fact, your lifetime emissions amount to quite a significant amount of harm done to other people. And it's a simple moral rule that you should not do harm to other people. Well, I absolutely agree with everything that has been said, so I would add just challenging your, your first assumption that you won't be benefiting from climate change action because, in fact, it is already happening and uh, impacts in Europe might be milder than in some other countries, but if, if we look at, at impacts that Africa is facing, Bangladesh, uh, small island developing states, but even here in Europe there is data that shows uh, li- links of floods and uh, droughts, longer-term extreme weather events that we are already experiencing to the the impacts of climate change. So I think you will benefit from it as well. Thank you. Well spoken, everyone. Uh, it, it remains for us to thank our panellists, I think. And thank you very much for coming. And-